Yeah, the school strife for climate. Pretty, pretty loud. Pretty loud. I That's why this podcast is late going out because we have to wait for all the school strikers of climate change. To I wonder how much methane they put out. Just that whole amount of school kids. There'll be a lot of methane in there. You think those kids are full of shit? Yeah. David Cunliffe remains about as popular in the Labour caucus as a pussycat at Gareth Morgan's house. Look, this is a la-la budget. When my eyebrow goes up, it's a joke. Police still arrest criminals in New Zealand. Tried cannabis prohibition for the past 40 years. The fact is, that was a boring, useless speech. Sip it, sweetie, I'm getting there. Mr. Speaker, they say a week is a long time in politics. Hello and welcome back to the Iron Duke podcast, your weekly recap of all things policy and politics, where we run you through our peaks and our pits, interesting bits and anything that fits from Aotearoa and around the globe. I'm Maddie Burgess-Smith and with me is Principal Consultant Byron Terrace. Thanks Maddie. it's great to be back on another episode of the Iron Duke podcast. This week we're covering off the flood response, some of the controversy about Rob Campbell, the National Party's Three Waters and of course roadside drug testing. Maddie, kick us off. Back last March, the government passed the Land Transport Drug Driving Amendment Bill which said any police officer could pull over any citizen and do a saliva test at the roadside to see if they'd been impaired by drugs whilst driving. So the plan was that on the 11th of March, that would be the day. Anyone could be pulled over. And However, do a saliva test, right? And do a saliva test. Yeah. Now, what do you think is the key components that you need to do roadside saliva testing? MDMA and COVID-19. <laughs> You need a testing kit. Oh, you need a testing right, kit. Of course. Yeah, nice. They don't exist. Is this a case of the cart before the horse? Oh, it absolutely is. The police said, look, we're going to do this. You're going to be able to test for just about every substance. And this is going to be the thing. And it's going to be amazing. And then a whole bunch of people who knew a shitload more about drugs than New Zealand police, which concerningly is just about everyone, came out and said, look, sure, a test does exist. It throws up false positives all the time. And it cannot test the level of impairment. They've come at this, as you've described, from a position of oh, we've got this idea that we can test for it, but the technology doesn't exist. So they've just legislated and made it happen and realised they can't do it. It sounds trash. Absolutely useless. What's your pit of the week, Byron? Uh, my pit of the week, his name is Rob Campbell. And Rob Campbell, uh, what, a, what a guy, honestly, just both barrels at the government. This man was the chair of Te Whatu Water Health New Zealand, the government's new single health provider for the country. And not to mention the controversy surrounding the health reforms, but this guy decides that he's going to have a crack on LinkedIn, yes, the social media platform for blue suit wearing corporates, at the opposition's policy on three waters. Uh, that doesn't mean, as I've said publicly, that I'm neutered. Uh, it doesn't mean that I'm sitting there like a stuffed parrot or a parrot that's been trained just to say Polly wants a biscuit whenever the minister wants. That's not what I'm there for. It's not what I signed up for. The big question that has come out this week is where does the line exist between public servant and private citizen? Correct. Because he's gone on record and said, I made those comments as a private citizen. Then the minister comes out and under Section 36 of the Crown Entities Act just bullets the poor guy. Poor guy? No, screw that. You're chairing one of the biggest things. You have made your choice. You're a public servant. Your job is to be politically neutral. And that is in, that is such an important part of our democracy. And we are starting to take it for granted. And that's why I'm very impressed with Hipkins. I'm very impressed with Aisha Viral. I'm very impressed with the Attorney General actually saying, you know what? We don't stand for our public servants, no matter if they're in governance or in a central bureaucracy, saying things about politics. Well, and I think that is time, very important. Is it high time that we just got up and acknowledged that the Wellington bureaucracy has lent to the left for as long as time? I don't agree with that. I, th I think there are lots of people in Wellington who will do the job of the government of the day very well without putting their own personal political biases on this. 
And what we've seen with Rob Campbell being sacked is enforcing that. And so I'm annoyed that Rob Campbell's decided to just kind of carry on this tirade and have a crack. Did you see what he came out with this morning? Oh, I've seen all of it. I've listened to You know, he rang up the radio shows. He literally rang up live talkback radio to say, oh, I'm really angry that I've been sacked. I'm sorry, mate, you but, knew the job you were getting into. But, you know, like he does have the he does have the state secrets with him and he's gone out and said, you know, the, the Te Whata order revamp, the whole restructuring, there's going to be a restructuring of 80,000 jobs. See you later, guys. Can you just imagine the uncertainty oh. and the stress that he has created for people today? No, I can't. And I congratulate the government for sacking him. Anyway, let's talk about more positive things. Maddie, what is your peak... Odeweg. Yeah, excited to see the Cyclone Recovery Task Force Working Group thing set up by Grant Robertson. That will be chaired by Sir Brian Roach, the other only person actually. Do the Labour Party know anybody else? I don't think like, they do. Like they used I to know Rob, but he's no maybe, longer there. Maybe right? Rob. Maybe Rob will be getting new jobs. Doubt it. Doubt it. Rob is cancelled. Uh, that task force is going to be charged with leading the rebuild. It's important that these groups get set up and that these groups get set up fast because it's it's just critical that there is a centralised response for a lot of this infrastructure rebuild because otherwise you end up in a position where there are too many disparate parts of the system trying to do the same thing. So being able to look at kind of the entire Hawke's Bay, Gisborne, Tarafati region and say, okay, this is where the critical infrastructure lies. This is what we need to get back online to ensure kind of continuity of businesses, people's livelihoods can be maintained, that people have access and, you know, and aren't cut off is is really important. I do worry uh, about the Wellington nature of all of this. You know, um, Hawke's Bay, Gisborne, Tarafati, they are as far removed from urban Wellington central oh, bureaucracy as you can get. you surprised. There's a couple of people doing the old commute from uh, Havelock North to the Wellington bureaucracy. Yeah, Hav- Havelock North is like Kandala <laughs> but in the regions. There is, is a Craig's office and a Jardin There's office. There's a Jardin in, office in Havelock North. So if you're in Hicks Bay or Tokumaru oh, Bay, totally. you, your connection to the Wellington bureaucracy is, is almost nil. And so I do get a bit concerned about how central government is very much like, we're doing this, blah, yeah, blah, 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 yeah. blah. And actually, the local communities that know where they need stuff and what they need, they've well, got to make the sure they've got the voice. The local community's voice will obviously be heard. And while it's all well and good to be getting on with this rebuild, there's some really big conversations that are still to be had that won't be covered by this task force. And a lot of those are around the future of insurance in New Zealand. Mm. How do we ensure that businesses can still operate in the face of you know the adversity that these sorts of natural disasters throw at us? I guess that we have on today is going to talk about exactly that. Julie White, Chief Executive. Executive of Hospitality New Zealand. But before Julie joins us, Byron, talk about pipes. I know that you're obsessed. Pipes, that's right, Three Waters. Uh, we're back on the Three Waters topic, ladies and gentlemen. So uh, over the weekend, my peak of the week was the National Party actually finally revealing what it is they think about the controversial water reform programme. Thirdly, what I'd say is that Labour's Three Waters scheme, I think, is completely wrong. The public do not, they will not, and they should not trust Labour on water policy again. To nobody's surprise, they picked up the Castalia Communities for Local Democracy model, which looks like this. You set up a central government bureaucracy to regulate two things. Firstly, water quality. We already have that, it's called Tomata Arawai. And the second entity they set up is an economic regulator to tell you what your maintenance schedule should look like with your pipes, you've got to go back and say, here's what we plan to invest or um, give back to the community if it's a utility entity, like a company. Ooh. Uh, and that basically sets the investment you need to make as a whatever entity into your pipes. So that's the first kind of top line stuff. Central government bureaucracy, that's what central government controls. At a local government level, the National Party's policy is to encourage the formation 
of these utility companies that span regions. So whether it's 12, 4, 14, that's not up to central government because they know they don't own the assets right now. It's up to local to people to decide what is Correct. going to make the most financial sense to them? Financial, regional, all that kind of stuff. The National Party's opposition policy is essentially a bottom-up council-led program to see this is where the water entities make sense to be combined, this is where they don't, so we won't do that. Um, sure, it's not like I can stand up here and announce there's going to be four water entities and they're going to be all party-branded policy mm. and all that kind of stuff, but it makes far more sense from a local level because that's where the assets are, that's where they're delivering to. You and your little community in Brooklyn, that's where you get your water from, you don't get it from Topor, but we'll be for some reason in the same entity, managed as the same as Topor being in Wellington. That doesn't make sense to me. Do you know what the National Party policy is actually saying? What? Co-governance right off. That's what I read into that. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Because they I, dropped that element of the of the policy completely, and that is the part that has actually been the most controversial for the government. I would say it's co-governance followed by taking water assets off councils, so people don't feel like water assets are democratic anymore. What's interesting on the co-governance side of things is lots of uh, most councils now will have Māori wards elected people to represent mm. those communities. So you will have inbuilt into a council ownership system Imagine a Imagine if councillors owned public assets when they were elected. Maybe then we'd get like half decent people. Well, then they'd all want profits to be made. They'd actually all be quite interested in, oh. you know, returns and stuff. Make you smart people. Yeah. Well, <laughs> anyway, today we're joined, as Maddie said before, by Julie White, the Chief Executive of Hospitality New Zealand, to tell us a little bit about the business situation on the ground in the Hawke's Bay, Gisborne, Wairoa and Tairawhiti. We are joined in studio by Julie White, the Chief Executive of Hospitality New Zealand. Julie, thank you so much for being here at a time when your sector is once again really trying to pick itself back up. Can, can you start by telling us a bit about you and a bit about the work that Hospitality New Zealand does? Yeah, kia ora, and thanks so much for having me on. Um, it's really important to get the message out so people really understand what our sector's actually going through. Um, look, my name's Julie White, I'm Chief Executive Hospitality New Zealand. Hospitality New Zealand has been around um, representing really good people who operate uh, hospitality venues in food and beverage and accommodation. We have been working alongside businesses and government for over 120 years. 120? Um, must be one of the older industry associations in New Zealand. Yeah, in our sector, we are the oldest. Here's a fun fact for you. Back in the day, we used to collect uh, the tavern tax. So, Yeah, so um, we're known as the trusted advisor when it comes to hospitality and accommodation. And I think it's a really important part to start with where we've actually come from from the last three years. It's no secret that the health settings, we were always disproportionately affected, uh, literally shut our businesses down. So why does that matter right now? It's because we've had three years of zero trading for some, you know, over 900 days that we're talking about, you know, those late night venue operators, uh, Auckland, you know, they had multiple lockdowns. And so the scarring is significant. People, you know, literally had to remortgage their houses to continue. And, you know, we really need to do a, a shout out to all these resilient hospitality um, operators because their willingness to stay um, and, and it's persevere, right? But also, Push they had it. nothing else. Yeah. Keep that in mind. What do you walk away to? 
Well, you yes, that's a really good point because you know they did mortgage their houses, mm. so you know they it's all didn't. On the line. They didn't have a choice, and this is where the governments, you know, I don't think they really understood. And look at what we're going through now with this labour shortage. So. Our labour shortage is the new crisis and, you know, we haven't been backwards in coming forward uh, and trying to get the immigration settings somewhat even reasonable. Um, you but, and everyone else. Yeah. You're not alone in that, that labour shortage at the moment. You know, we hear from most sectors, oh, it's tough to find people, it's tough, these new immigration settings, but you guys are at the front line. Well, that's it, you know, and, you know, at what point in time do we take into consideration the brand.com of New Zealand mm. and that offshore reputation, you know, and that's just not international visitors, that's, you know, commercial, you know, um, business investors. Yeah. My question to the government is what's the government's responsibility here because, you know, yep, fact, there's a global labour shortage. So, you know, if you're when you're a business operator, you take that into consideration, you know, to be competitive at the at this point in time, we are not competitive to attract people here. People want certainty. You know, that's what the government has mm, overlooked. And that's their major failing about the why we cannot get the, the skills and capability that we need. Given where kind of wages and salaries are in your industry, do you believe the sector's got a role to play in that? I think the sector's already on that journey. So absolutely, pre-COVID, you know... There was our underperformers. We majority of our guys are actually paying above the minimum wage because that's the market forces. Yeah, good. supply and demand. It's but a really being said cost of living crisis. Being above the minimum wage isn't a lot for people to be able to thrive in New Zealand on. So then you I, end up in that in that kind of wage cost spiral, though, right? You've got correct. you as a business. Yes, minimum wage is going up, so you're trying to keep up. So then you've got to turn your coffee machine on mm. and then make make it more expensive for people to buy. Well, your margins being squished, right? Yeah. So you've got upward costs at the bottom, and then you know, at some point in time, because don't forget to go to a hospitality venue or accommodation, that's disposable income. So then we're going to have pressure on the revenue top line around that price elasticity. So my question back to you is, whose responsibility is this cost of living crisis? You know, there is a role for the government here. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so I think it's somewhat in industry, but I think mainly it's government because you're right, You know, we can't just keep increasing wages because it will fuel inflation. Fact. Majority of people actually work in hospitality as they go through university. You know, we are a stepping stone. So they're learning all these soft skills. But what we're seeing now, so this is my pushback on the pay more conversation. What we, our members are telling us, we are getting more lower bar work ready people landing. And that's off the back of the high truancy rate. Oh, yeah, good point. The numeracy and literacy gap to gold at the moment. So don't forget, majority of our guys are first employers. Mm-hmm. So we're actually teaching the basics that you need to turn up on time. You yeah. know, you need to work in a team. You need to dress appropriately. Skills that employers often take for granted, right? But also skills that parents and schools should be teaching. You're absolutely right yeah. about that. Oh, yeah. you are not in, you're not supposed to be a tertiary soft skills provider. But we're also having to train at our own cost. And so it's not even just a financial, it's also that time. And with the labour shortage, everyone is so thinly spread. What's happening is there's more pressure on the people who are already thinly spread. Mm, mm. 
Mm. So that that's actually the scenario that's happening in the real world at hospitality. However, what we don't have is a, a revenue and a demand issue at the moment. Majority of the people actually had travel credits. So what they had is they've got the travel credits that uh, like – for example, in rental cars. Yeah, and point. so... Yeah. Fares is the big one. Yeah. yeah. So when the, these current um, international visitors have landed, they technically have more cash in their pocket to uh, take advantage of that. You need to operate at 100%. Mm. With this shortage of labour, we cannot operate at 100%. So the new 100% is 80%. Yeah. So our pull-through on profitability is not being maximised. So that's one of the frustrating things here is the sector can actually, you know, recover if we're allowed to recover. If you have that capacity to. And, of course, now with the impact of the latest weather events, you know, Cyclone Gabriel and the floods in Auckland. Touching on that, what do we need to see rolled out in the Hawke's Bay and Gisborne at the moment to support your members? What does the government need to be coming to the table with? Yeah, it's a really good call out. So um, they've just announced $50 million fund as an, in, an initial and I'm really happy to hear that it's initial because we will need more. You're going to be on their <laughs> heels, I can tell. So look, right here and now, um, we need some certainty. We actually need support right now in cash flow. Yeah. That is number one to keep us open. We also need to retain staff. So some type of wage subsidy is so important because if you cannot keep your staff retained, one thing we learned in COVID um, off the back of 2020 is that we needed to retain our staff to reopen for the sugar rush in 21. Keep them sticky to their jobs. That is 101. And and by the way, the government will need us because we'll need to get the cash going through the economy to get some tax to pay off all this debt. Exactly. You need successful <laughs> what goes around comes around, baby. That's correct. But that's it, right? So um, never has it been more important for government and industry to come together to help us manage and get out of this. And to come full circle, it's not just about the tax take. It's about those people who are experiencing extreme levels of hardship and distress having somewhere to go. Somewhere to go is a place to chill out. Absolutely. So it's not only that you know, clarity um, for your staff, but also as a venue, don't forget hospitality guys are the place that you go catch up with your friends and you check in with each other, right? Yeah, good point. Never has it been more important for people to check in. And where do people check in? They check in at hospitality venues. Absolutely. And one of the safest places to enjoy an alcoholic beverage is at a hospitality venue. Absolutely. And that's fact. Maybe for you. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Julie, that was great. Uh, As is tradition on the Iron Duke podcast, we finish each interview with a quick fire, hold or not, asking you something that's topical to the conversation. And if you like it, it's simply hot. If you don't like it, it's simply not. Madison, kick us off. Charging me for my doggy bag at a restaurant. Ooh, I think that's an up to the operator. So I might not. (laughs) QR code menus. Hot. And I think I know the answer to this one. Uber Eats. Not hot. <laughs> nice. I think, yeah, mine, mine are going to be slightly different. Uh, oat milk. Are mm. we talking about cafes? Cafes getting oat milk in. Yeah. It's like the seventh milk yeah. available. Yeah, yeah, yeah not, it's hot. Yeah, it's nice. a trend. See, we got it's a trend. I like that. Byron's a trend. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hospitality venues going cashless. Not hot. And self-service machines replacing uh, customer service people. Good luck. <laughs> I love it. Oh, that's great. Julie, thank you so much for your time. It was great to see you. And we hope that the sector recovers well. 
Well, listeners, don't feel bad about dining out. Don't feel bad about buying that extra coffee. Feel bad, in fact, about going to the big multinational countdown and choosing to buy your groceries to eat in. That's right. Support local where you can. And until then, we'll see you next week. week.